I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. David Beckwith of Grand Cru Wine Consulting and Pick a Bottle. Hello, sir. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me, Levy. Nice to have you here. So you grew up in New York, and uh-huh. and how did you get into the wine thing? What happened there? I was always surrounded by wine a little bit. I'd say growing up, my father would drink some bottles, have it on the table and stuff like that, parents enjoying wine at meals. And I definitely remember, though, when it really hit was when I was studying abroad in Florence years ago, uh, junior year, semester abroad. You know, it was uh, spring of 2000, I guess it was at that point, so a little while ago. And I took a wine class one evening. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm in Italy here. I'm going to learn about food and wine a little bit, what I can, you know. I was an art history, kind of history double major. So it all it all fit perfectly, if you will. I find that those yeah. things do fit really well. Yeah, yeah. Art history, like, you know, wine, the aesthetics of wine and art together, you know, history, vintages, you know, things like that. So they they definitely work. And I remember this one class I took. It was just like, a standard wine class that they had at Syracuse University where I, I did it at. And it was just, you know, come in for the evening, an hour, taste some wines. You know, the guy had basically two whites, two reds, I think. You know, he's kind of going through them like, you know, this white shows this characteristic because of this. This shows this. This red shows this. And I just kind of remember getting it, you know, a little bit. Like, I just kind of zoomed in and I'm like, oh, I, I, I see these differences. Like, I see what this guy's talking about right here. So kind of for the next two months, I guess, that I was in Florence, I would, you know, be out at dinners and things like that and just paying attention, you know, to wines. Just kind of like, oh, what's this? Vino Nobile, I haven't had this before. You know, what's uh, this Brunello? More expensive. What's this? I'll have to try one at some point. (laughs) And then after that, actually, my father came over and we did a trip through France, actually, like driving from Florence uh, all the way up to to Paris for, you know, great, like, you know, father-son bonding trip. And I kind of told him, like, yeah, I'm starting to get into this wine thing a little bit. He's like, oh, all right. Well, you know, let's... uh, you know, let's find some fun restaurants and stuff like that and, you know, see what happens. So we just go to places in the countryside. I remember one night they had at this uh, place um, kind of right outside the Rhone Valley. It was like one of those, you know, we had the old Michelin guide at that point where we're going through, you know, and we would choose things not by stars, you know, but just by forks, you know, and it has like one or two forks. It's like, wow, that place is probably pretty good. It's in the guide and everything. And I remember going to this one place and my dad said, okay, you know, they, they have this special bottle of wine it looks like kind of as their as their special of the evening and it was an old 1983 cornas that they had for you know something like you know i forget what it was but like you know the equivalent of 50 dollars, you know something like that let's say it was just absolute steel and uh, i drank it it was great you know we really enjoyed it and then a couple of years later as i got into the wine business you know i remember i remember the label and it was definitely either like Vosges or clap that we had you know that evening so where'd that lead you from there, the next year when I went back to Lafayette College, uh, senior year, I was kind of the guy that would, you know, invite friends over for dinner, like make some pasta or something like that, you know, and have wide spectator and Robert Parker out, you know, on the dinner table. I'm looking at it, like kind of taking my own notes on the wines. And my buddies just sitting over here, like, yeah, it tastes good to me, you know, kind of thing. But uh, just that kind of interest level was getting peaked and kind of snowballing, you know, I'd say at that time. It's probably a good opportunity to 
kind of impress girls as well. Yeah, exactly. Definitely why I got into it, for sure. <laughs> but no, seriously. <laughs> like, hey, yes, I can make dinner and I can pair wine. Yeah, you know? exactly. It didn't hurt, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, as senior was winding down, it's kind of like, oh, I guess I have to get a job. What am I going to do with that? And I knew I was going to be traveling around for a couple months in that fall. And so it's kind of like, all right, what do I do in the meantime? And, you know, I walked in one day to Zaki's uh, in Scarsdale. And I'm like, wow, this store is a really great store. Just, you know, the aura of the store itself, you know, it's just big, open, spacious, you know, they have tons of great wines. I was like, oh, I think I want to work here for a little bit. And I think it was it was Andrew McMurray, actually. I just stopped in the store because I'd seen him in the ad or something like that. Just said, like, hi, you know, Dave Beckwith, graduating from college. You know, do you mind if I, you know, maybe apply for a position in the summer or something like that? And he, you know, referred me to this other guy. And, you know, one thing led to another. And then, yeah, I was there for the summer. And what was that like? It was a fun introduction, for sure. I mean, I kind of did a little bit of everything on the retail side of things for, well, not everything, obviously. But, you know, any, everything one can do at that stage just on the floor, actually selling wines, just getting like kind of crash courses in, you know, Bordeaux, California, Italy, all of that. But also I remember I processed tons and tons of the uh, 2000 Bordeaux future orders. They were just starting to come in. Like Zaki's was one of the biggest sellers of them. So, you know, we'd just be sitting there like talking to guys and then like processing these mega orders, you know, seeing these like, whoa, this guy just got a case of Oson, case of every first growth, you know, two cases of label Bartolo Magnus. It was just kind of amazing to see like that kind of quantity rolling through you know, that these collectors would do. So yeah, did did that for a while and then went to go travel and then came back. And again, it was like, all right, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I had a really good time at Zaki's actually. Like, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them. Like, and then I had heard that they were starting up an auction department. What and year was that? This was in uh, spring of 2001 at this point. And so I heard they were starting an auction department. So I called the same guy that I worked with before. It's a great guy, George McGough. And I said, like, I when's this auction department starting? You know, are you guys hiring yet or anything? They're like, well, not yet exactly, but why don't you just come back, you know, for a while and we'll figure something out in the meantime. And then, you know, when they are ready, we'll see if you're ready as well. So yeah, eventually just, you know, got the call from Don Zachariah, went upstairs and, you know, it, uh, it all worked out. But I didn't realize that the auction part of Zachy's took off after September 11th. It did. It was in the works before then. But uh, their so, first sale was in the fall of 2002. What was that like in terms of a, a climate, in terms of people spending money? And uh, I was unsure, yeah. you know, I'd say. Uh, when we were doing our first sale, you know, I think we were all kind of you know, talking about projections for it and, you know, obviously being a little conservative and, you know, it blew past that. You know, we did like 40, 50 percent above what we were kind of thinking we would do. You know, I remember walking in that Monday morning, you know, just kind of like, woo, you know, with the whole team. It was, uh, it was great. It was, it was a great feeling. You know, we... We did it the right way. What was the wine auction landscape like at that time? Well, Zaki's really changed the auction landscape. I mean, before that, it was, you know, kind of Sotheby's, Christie's boardrooms, you know, at that point. And then Zaki's comes along and just makes it fun, makes it sexy, you know, like, all right, Danielle, you know, like one of the best restaurants in the world, you know, just like great room for an auction, you know, just spacious and just comforting. And uh, yeah, just blew the roof off but also fully focused on wine. They didn't sell antiques or art. No, no, fully focused on wine. You had just uh, wine people that were there just focused on customer service the entire time. They knew the buyers, they knew the sellers, they knew everyone involved. You know, uh, it was great to be surrounded by that from the beginning. What was the collector culture like around that time? It was still very focused on points, I would say. Definitely, you know, Parker, Spectator, everyone still ruled the landscape, you know, for sure. Like, you know, Burgundy really wasn't that much of a thing. You know, Bordeaux definitely ruled, like sales would be certainly 70 to 80% Bordeaux. You know, some some Burgundies for sure, like, you know, California's here and there, but you know, Bordeaux is king. There was no question. I mean, I look back at some of these auction catalogs and, you know, you'll just see like 1985 Chambertin Rousseau, you know, estimate, you know, $150 to $250 per bottle or something like that, you know, and that was almost felt expensive you know, for a Burgundy back then. So people didn't you know, they were still just being ruled by these, by these magazines, you know, at that point, the sommelier culture wasn't what it is these days. They're, the internet wasn't what it is. There just wasn't a way really to get this other information unless you just put yourself out there to buy the wines and try them and taste them, drink them with groups and talk about them. And where did that lead you in terms of meeting with collectors and working in Zaki's? Well, my position there was a, a wine specialist, which is 
kind of like an all around wine geek. You know, you could say you did a little bit of everything, really. Uh, you talked to the consigners about, you know, what what's hot in the market, what maybe they should be selling. You would talk to the buyers about what's great in the sale, what some of your favorites are. When the wines came in to the warehouse, you'd actually go in and inventory them, inspect them, catalog them, everything like that. Uh, you then actually have a role in doing the data entry into the catalog, like editing the catalog in the last couple of days before it goes to print. So like from start to finish, you know, we were there, you know, we just kind of saw everything, which I loved. You know, I, I think it's it's great to kind of run the gamut like that, you know, because you then get to realize what parts of the business you do or don't like. Yeah. What makes a successful auction outside of the economic climate of the moment? I think it's the the corporate culture, honestly, that they have. That's a big part of it. You know, it's it's a service oriented industry, you know, so you really just have to be thoughtful, you know, present yourself very well, be very wine knowledgeable and just be a nice guy. You know, be the kind of guy that people want to hang out with. You know, I think that's really important in the wine business. Um, you know, it's a very social business. You know, I mean, sure, I worked during the day, but then, you know, I'm out three or four nights a week, you know, just as, as work still, but it's play. But, you know, auction houses have to do, do that as well. So I, I think that's certainly a very important part, just having like good people behind it, you know, that can never be underestimated. And it seems like that was about the time that you started to see more and more restaurant buyers buying at auction. Yeah, you definitely started to. Um, I'm always surprised there aren't more, you know, to be honest, in, uh, in the auction market. But um, yeah, I think more and more people gradually started paying more attention, you know, especially as the auction market itself just got bigger and bigger just got more press, you know, more hype. That's where more of the collections were actually going to be bought, you know, as opposed to just privately or from retailers or something like that. So in a way, people are kind of forced into that. <laughs> you know, if you, you want the older wine, here's where you got to go. And do you think it had a effect on current pricing? Like if old vintages of a certain Bordeaux are selling for a certain price, did that push current release prices up more? I would say the current release prices pushed up the older wines more. Got it. Like when you suddenly had things like, you know, 2000 Bordeaux, 2003, 2005, 2009, 2010, you know, suddenly you're like, okay, so, you know, Lynch Bosch is now being released at X price and I can buy the 85 or 82, which is, you know, drinkable right now for almost the same price. It's like, all right, great. I'm going to focus on those more. Maybe I'll get a case of, you know, this 2009 to keep my allocations or whatever, just, you know, keep the sellers happy kind of thing. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, that wine's not ready to drink for a long, long time. So when you look at an auction room, is it, usually essentially the same group of people or is it often a, a mix of people or how many people really define the fine it's uh, it's constantly like evolving you know I, i'd say i i mean every every auction i go to i certainly see some new faces uh, and that's a really important part of it is i think you know getting these these new people in the game you know because eventually people sellers do get full you know <laughs> there comes a time when maybe they don't need so much wine anymore so always need you know new, new skin in the game but I definitely have seen a lot of the same people at the auctions for, you know, I guess now, you know, 13 years or so, 14 years since I've been involved in the industry. So, I mean, some of the same guys, you know, we, we're still drinking together, you know, which is fun. You know, you get to still talk about those wines you had then, how they're evolving, you know. So you're one of the rare guys that I know who went from auctions to restaurants. That's mm -hmm. not the usual move. What encouraged you to make that path? I'd say after three years at Tacky's, I just felt like I knew all I needed to know at that point in the auction industry. And I just wanted to learn different aspects, you know, of the fine wine industry itself. And uh, I remember working, I was working my first La Palais actually in New York in, uh, I guess it was 2005. Yeah, spring of 2005 at that point. And uh, I met David Lynch for the first time. Uh, great. One of the greats of the industry, you know, just Who such, was that such a good guy. At that time. Yeah. And he was the wine director there. Uh, and he got, just kind of casually said to me, like, oh, by the way, you know, if you know of anyone who's looking for a sommelier position, you know, I'm going to need one in the next couple of months or something. And I just kind of went like, oh, okay. And I just kept it in my pocket. I kind of pondered it over the course of a month or so. And, you know, eventually I just thought, like, it's, it's worth chatting. You know, let's just give him a call, you know. And I kind of called him and said, like, yeah, I might know someone, you know, they kind of know about it generally higher end wines and not all the lower level Italian stuff. Like I, after a minute, he's kind of like, wait, are you talking about yourself? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, uh, I'd you know, love to have someone like you, you know, if it all works out, like why don't you come down next week? You know? So we just chatted about it and everything. And yeah, it's uh, it all came together. What's David like? Oh, he's, he's hilarious. <laughs> he's one of the funniest guys in the industry <laughs> for sure. 
but uh, when it comes down to it on the floor, I mean, you know, he's he's all work, you know, for sure. He'll he'll still crack some side jokes and stuff like that, but you know, he's focused. You know, he's right there in the game. And when I when I was there, it was kind of this like little shakeup going on at Baba where David was becoming GM after wine director, and then Colin Sheehan, who's now like as a GM at Upland, took over there. You know, so David was certainly very focused on all of that, but uh, he's he's a hard worker, man. You know, he really is. And what was Baba like at that time? I remember that was kind of the go time for Baba. I remember it was one of the first restaurants I went to in, in 04 or 05. It was intense. Honestly, it was, it was really intense. It's a hard working restaurant. You know, it definitely is. I mean, it's just like gung ho at all times. You know, I mean, it was my first restaurant experience, so I just jumped in. But a lot of the servers, you know, they had been at many other places before and they're just like this place is really full throttle you know, <laughs> like, you know you're no messing around here sink or swim you know kind of place so yeah i did that you know for uh for a while and you know again but after a while it's kind of like yeah you know i feel like i've now learned about wine service you know like kind of like how, mu- how much more can i learn here specifically it's like do i go to the restaurant and then uh this company kind of approached me at the time uh vintrust which was like a wine cellar management company it was basically them and Vinfolio were like almost the same, you know, and uh, they were competitors, you know, on San Francisco and stuff. And so the I talked to the guys out there. They flew me out and everything, and they wanted a, a New York representative, you know, to kind of handle general sales, marketing, helping out with the seller management stuff here. And so, you know, one thing led to another, and you know, I started working there and as their East Coast rep, and you know, I I knew right away though that that probably wasn't for the long term. You know, for me, I can just kind of tell, honestly, on like day one, you know, I think really? like, okay, well, all right, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. I mean, I guess, you know, the disconnect between like me being in New York and being in San Francisco, probably things weren't, probably some of the right questions weren't asked, you know, or something like that. Who knows? You know, but I could just tell. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to learn what I need to learn, you know, and then figure things out. So uh, I met a, you know, a lot of collectors, you know, in the, uh, in the area still through that. And then eventually Robert Bohr and I kind of connected on when we started to have overlap, even with some customers, you know, in terms of like, you know, he was doing some consulting stuff and, you know, I was doing this Vintrust thing. We're like, you know, why don't we do something ourselves? Why don't we make it bigger and badder than kind of anything that is out there, you know, kind of in a way though, more discreet at the same time, you know, and we're like, all right, let's do it. You know, so Grand Cru Wine Consulting started in uh, fall of 2007. So, and what would you say are the hallmarks of that company? I could say it's generally fine and rare wine advisory and consulting for private individuals. But, uh, you know, we kind of do a little bit of everything, you know, to be honest. It's really like a, a fine wine concierge firm. You know, we, uh, we certainly buy on behalf of clients, advise what they should be selling in their collection, um, help doing inventories, you know, managing those, doing a lot of private events. So basically everything... I had done before between like Zaki's, Babo, Vintrust, really like all meshed together perfectly with Grand Cru. And yeah, we've had kind of a steady stream of clientele since day one. So thank goodness. <laughs> Nothing's uh, going off there. Yeah, it's been, it's been very positive, you know, for, for I, I know myself and Robert and our clients as well. Robert had also worked for Batali and Bastiano Chihuahua. He did. He did. And Robert and I had met, though, years ago at, uh, at Zaki's. That's when I was right. in the auction department, he was the burgundy buyer uh, and champagne buyer, I believe, at the time. Which is a market in both cases that's evolved a lot, I think. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Intervening <laughs> years. And what would you say Robert's like? You know, he's, he's one of the hallmarks, I'd say, of the New York wine industry these days, you know, for sure. You know, he's, he's just always a good guy to be around. You know, I think he always kind of livens up the scene, you know. It's not that many people that kind of just take things to another level. I think just his his personality is big and everything like that. But you know, he always he always does the right thing. You know, as well, he he really always does. Which uh, as a business partner is really appreciative, <laughs> of course. And what is the scope of consulting? You said that it's a varied amount of services, private events, helping concierge. But how far does it go in terms of? scalable market is this something that a lot of people have interest in is this something that's always going to be just a handful of people or yeah i mean we we're not in a position where we can have hundreds of clients to be honest we have you know several dozens of clients you know but we it's just not that scalable in terms of our physical time you know that that's really what it is i mean people are paying for our time and expertise you know with what we do 
if we stretch ourselves too thin, then, you know, we're just not going to be able to handle everyone with the kind of service that they deserve. I mean, you know, we're dealing with guys who they've done they're very successful, you know, throughout their lives. And they deal with the top level of service with whatever it is, you know, just be it their bank, be it insurance, you know, be it their home, whatever it is, you know. So we need to offer that kind of level of service on the wine side as well. And, you know, if we if we just take things out too far just to kind of be selfish ourselves, you know, we're, we're not going to offer that. Um, you know, there, there are always ways to make it work, you know, for sure. But which we've done a great job at, I think. But, yeah, in terms of, you know, massive scalability, like I can't really see that. But we're very happy and comfortable with what we're doing. So a lot of times during the 90s, I watched as people seemed to spend most of their wine dollars in restaurants on what were at the time higher-end wines, but those prices have now been eclipsed massively by the current prices that similar wines receive. And one of the things I sometimes wonder is if a lot of the wine spending dollar hasn't moved to retail for higher-end wines, and in fact, if there hasn't become more of a market for someone looking for professional level consulting, whereas they used to turn to the sommelier for their high-end wine purchase. Now they need a sommelier that, or someone with commensurate experience that they can refer to for purchasing for their own seller. Yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, I mean, the internet really leveled the playing field, I would say, you know, just things like wine searcher, you know, itself. I mean, you can suddenly see where wines are selling at, you know, where, and, you know, just looking at auction data history and things like that. You, everything is out there for the taking. So, yeah, people, people, if they can't really take the time to do it themselves and stuff like that, and at the same time, looking at all of these auction catalogs, you know, that come in, I mean, I, I have a stack, you know, a foot high on my desk almost at all times of auction catalogs. You know, I mean, we deal with some collectors that are, they have massive collections that are incredibly knowledgeable. And then we deal with other guys who are oftentimes friends of theirs who are just kind of starting out in the wine scene. And who you know, spends more money, the latter or the former? I'd probably say the former, you know, even the guys with somewhat big collections, just because they're always looking to kind of step up, I'd say. Like, okay, they might move from buying some Eshes of DRC to Richborg, the Latash, you know, kind of thing. But it's, it's really a matter of time, you know. And, you know, if you want a collection these days, you have to put time and energy and money into it. And so like, we come into play, I think, where it's like they'd rather be at work, you know, dealing with what they're doing, you know, making, making that trade or that deal or whatever it is, you know. And if they miss that, then, you know, they, they miss maybe enough wines to buy for six months you know, or something like that, which would not be good. So, you know, they know that we're out there working for them on their behalf. So that consultancy started in 2007. Mm -hmm. So that's been a fair amount of time to watch market trends. Mm -hmm. What bets have you made that have worked? What bets have you made that have been more difficult? I'd say Burgundy, I mean, especially, it's just, it's just always gone up. You know, it's always been like, you know, a one-way shoot. You know, I mean, Burgundy certainly stalled out, you know, in uh, the financial crisis for a little bit. It dropped, you know, some DRCs, but not nearly as much as Bordeaux. I think you're seeing... I mean, a lot of the wines we've always enjoyed buying, of course, are now, unfortunately, more people are catching on, you know, just the Giacosas and Shavs and things like that, you know, which have always been kind of enough under the radar, but, you know, are now just kind of moving in that upward direction, you know, which uh, we don't really like to see, but so it goes. Because one of those is Northern Rhone and the other is Italy, and both of those are not mainstays of the auction market in general. Yeah. It really comes down to the style of wine and producer, you know, like with anything, all these wines that... Robert and I go for, and that our clients often go for too, you know, they're wines of distinction. You know, the Shav wines are very unique for themselves. You know, let's say they hardly taste like any other Northern Rhone. Who, who else is making better Northern Rhone out there today? Things like that. Giacosas are, you know, I mean, they're just, they're so spectacular on another level. Same with like Cantero Mafertino and all those kind of guys, you know. So yeah, it's fortunately not just us, you know, who knows about them anymore. So producers, Paramount. I think so. I think so. Where do you think the market's going to go? Do you think it's going to be continue to be the rise of Burgundy, perhaps to the chagrin of Bordeaux, or what's going to happen in the next eight years? I can't see Burgundy slowing down anytime soon unless there is like another financial crisis or something like that. I mean, you have more people visiting the region and figuring out what it's all about. I mean, I still remember the first time I went to Burgundy, you know, and it's, it's just amazing. You know, I had been to Bordeaux years before and things like that. And you go to Burgundy, something like, okay, here's, you know, slope of Bun Mar right there. Oh, and like several dozen people own that. That one little section right there that I'm standing in. But yet suddenly you're standing in Leva Las Cas or something, and it's Leva Las Cas as far as the eye can see, you know, everywhere. I mean, when it comes down to it, Bordeaux 
is a fine wine, but it's not really a fine and rare wine. Burgundy is legitimately a fine and rare wine. You know, more people are figuring that out, I think. Just the rarity of it, where if you, if you want it, you just have to kind of buy it, you know. And rarity drives valuation. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. What else might come up that maybe hasn't come up? I mean, if you were to say to someone sitting down with you now, if they were to say, look, David, I want to build a cellar for 40 years out. I want my grandkids to, to drink this, but I also want something that's going to be a significant return on investment. What would be the next thing that might increase in value the way that Burgundy did or even half of that? I still think focusing certainly on, you know, best producers, best years, producer being more paramount. But it really comes down to style that you like. You know, that, that's really what I always say. It's like, okay, you know, this this producer, you know, makes X wine in this style. This producer makes X wine in this style. They both got 95 points, but not all 95 point wines are created equal. So always buy something that you are going to like. You know, if if you like big oaky fruit bombs, fine. Like, go for it, you know, buy it. That's fine. But if you want, you know, these kind of seamless, elegant, softer wines, you know, in a way that are more aromatic, you know, then let's focus on those, you know, because I mean, personally, I'd much rather have a 91 point Soldera from Brunello than a 98 point, oh, no names, but just, you know, oaky, messy fruit bomb, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But do you think the critical landscape has moved past single voice, single score and into something more diverse? And- oh, definitely. Definitely. The whole... I mean, social media then is really like the next level after the internet where, you know, you, you follow, you know, top sommeliers or something like that on Instagram, you know, for example, like you're then getting, I'd say more of a feel for the under the radar stuff, like, uh, you know, the kind of things you and I like to drink, <laughs> you know, if you will, because uh, as much as I love DRC, I, I can't afford it every day, you know, at this point by any means. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just, you know, things like uh, just for drinking follow a lot of that kind of stuff as well. But then like, you know, have your special wines as well. You know, but for sure, if you want me to help with that, I'm happy to. Why do you think sommeliers became more prominent in the culture? The knowledge that they have these days is just, it's at another level than what it was years ago. And you get guys that are, I think much more, they're more active. They, they put themselves out there much more. You know, it used to be, I think just the whole restaurant industry, you were at the restaurant, here's what you did at the restaurant, you know? But now it's just moving way beyond that. I mean, you have sommeliers making their own wines. You have this huge social media presence, everything at all times. So these guys are, they're just fun to be around too. I think, I mean, I've been friends with a lot of these guys, you know, and they're just, they're a blast, you know, to hang out with. And, you know, I see, I see collectors, you know, kind of embracing that as well. Like at Paul A uh, the other week at, at the after party that was going on. I remember this this one guy, I didn't even know him, but he's like going out to Michael Madrigal. You know, he's just like, why are you always having more fun than everyone else here? You know, you always have the biggest smile on your face and everything. You know, so that's that's kind of the aura that these guys are giving off these days. Do you think that the collectors have also embraced a more casual style of dining? Definitely. A lot of our clients have. You know, it's just, it's not stuffy. It's It's on their own terms, if you will. You know, they can just kind of go, like, put their arms up on the chairs, you know, relax with whatever kind of bottle of wine they want. It's, in a way, who who doesn't like that? Are there young people in fine wine in terms of buyers? Or is it really just start to begin at, you know, 39? There, of- there are some. We have several clients in their 30s. But, you know, to get that successful that quickly, it's rare. You know, I mean, when you're in your 40s, you certainly establish yourself more. You're probably making more money and things like that. So, yeah, it certainly happens, but just not as much. What surprised you over the last 10 years of your career? What didn't you see coming? I didn't see Bordeaux tanking as much. You know, that's for sure. I think that's a combination of several factors, though. I mean, it's the Hong Kong market, I think, just the Bordelais themselves just putting prices way too high out there, just getting arrogant, you know, thinking they could always sell to whoever. But I, used to, I went out to Hong Kong a handful of times years ago just to kind of you know, get a feel for the landscape out there, see what the market was like, see what the people were like, always in conjunction with the fabulous auction that was going on. It's like, all right, well, if I'm going to go out here, I'm making it worth my time, so I might as well buy some fun things too. And talk to a lot of guys, see if they, you know, were interested in kind of our services maybe or something like that, you know, what they thought of like, you know, Burgundy versus Bordeaux kind of things. When I was going out there, Bordeaux was definitely still like at the top, you know, for that. I mean, they were still paying, you know, like, $60,000 for cases of 82 Lafitte and things like that. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here kind of going like, you know, that's my least favorite of all the 1982 first growths. It's like, wh- why are they, why are they doing this? You know, 
Like they, they should have people like me out there, you know, I mean like, no, dude, like buy Obreon instead, you know, it's drinking so great right now, that kind of thing. But hey, you know, they, they were having fun with it, just wanting to do it themselves. But then really the tide turned very, very quickly. You know, where I kind of mentioned before, you know, the auction houses always need to have new blood coming in because sellers do fill up. Like their sellers filled up very quickly with Bordeaux and they immediately shied away from it. And but also not just shying away from it because their sellers were full, but because because also like culturally, you know, it suddenly was looked upon like, oh, that's like that's yesterday. You know, like, oh, now we have DRC. So it was, it was really interesting to see that kind of quick of a cultural shift happening, which caught me off guard. I think a lot of people too, the Bordelais, <laughs> probably especially more than anyone. Yeah, I mean, big difference between Bordeaux pricing 2011 auction versus Bordeaux price in 2013. That's not a long period in between. No, no, definitely. And you saw DRCs, you know, creep up so quickly, so fast. And they've kind of plateaued a little bit, you know, I think like the past year, you know, the, you know, the top ones have kind of been leveling off for a little bit. But right now, still a lot of the other producers like the Dujacs, the Rousseaus, the Rumiers, like they're still playing catch up. You know, those are definitely still on the rise, like to the point where I'll, you know, maybe leave a hundred bids at an auction and you know, suddenly I'll only get 11 lots, you know, or something like that. I'm like, what? I was being fairly aggressive on these things. What's going on here? You know, if it's an auction I couldn't attend. So I, I still get surprised, you know, at, at how far these things are going. What have been moments at auction, either on the seller side or on the buyer side, where it's been really exciting or unexpected. When, when have you sat and said, wow, I, wow, that one? I think uh, the rise of something like Clos Saint-Jacques, you know, Rousseau, for example. Like, I remember uh, seeing it at an auction about a year ago. And, you know, it was a case of, uh, I think it was 99 Clos Saint-Jacques. And suddenly, you know, it hammered at something like $6,500 or something like that. You know, I remember I turned to Robert. I'm like, these, these people know it's Premier Crew, not Grand Crew, you know, kind of thing. So these things just suddenly like throw you for a loop, you know, they, they really do with these, with these kind of prices. And what about certain wines? I know that you have a, a lot of knowledge about back vintages, well-known producers. What have been some of the standout wines that have really drawn you in over time? That special wine of that special cherry vintage. I still remember the first wine, well, first and only wine that ever actually brought tears to my eyes. A 78 La Chapelle. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. a great wine. Yeah. Epic wine. Epic wine. But uh, it was really like the lead up to that. You know, it was one of those magical nights. It was, you know, December in New York. It was at Veritas. We were sitting there in the uh, the front area, you know, like right there, kind of by the bar and by the glass doors. And it was snowing the whole time, you know. So it just had this like great vibe about it. It was like right after Zaki's auction, you know. So we're all like, woohoo, sail to great, you know, that kind of thing. And we just had so many great wines that night. We had like, you know, 73 Dom Perignon. I remember to start. We had a 2000 Bienvenue Batard Montrachet Carry-On, had a uh, 1978 Corton from Camille Giroud, uh, then we did a 82 Montprovato Mascarello. So it just kept on like, you know, up in the ante, like every every wine. Then suddenly 70 La Chapelle came out. I remember it just suddenly blew everything else out of the water, which I couldn't even believe. And I'm just sitting there swirling it and stuff like that and just you know just it's emotional you know when it when it hits you like that it, it really is you know it's like that's why you're in the industry you know because you do have this attachment to it someone out of a plot of land on a hill crushed grapes put it in a barrel put it in a bottle and here you are in this magical evening drinking it you know and especially and you know, like time stops when that happens you know and, it, and things like that they don't happen too often but I'd say once every, you know, I'd say once a season, every six months or so, there will be a wine that just stops me dead in my tracks. And it's like, you know, tunnel vision all of a sudden, like, you know, you're right there. You know, it's just you and the wine. You know, you're focused on it. You know, like you're, you're getting goosebumps. It's like tingling your nostril, you know, kind of thing. You're just like, and you, you just feel that, just that swell going through you. You know, your eyes do almost weld up, you know, it's, uh. It's really excellent. I mean, the, the last time I remember it happens with uh, actually 89 Obreon. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly like a burgundy Rhone Italian guy these days and stuff like that. But, you know, that that wine was the real deal. You know, it really was. And uh, it was in the middle of an auction, too. And I just remember like, whew, all right, everyone stop. <laughs> Hold on. This is great. It was the first time that had ever happened with that wine. You know, that's a wine I've been following its evolution for now for 14 years since I've been in the industry. So now seeing its shell finally cracking. You know, it's uh, it's it's kind of a special moment. You feel like they're like, oh, the kids all grown up, you know, or something like that. Yeah. You know? 
What have been moments where someone explained something to you about wine that was really meaningful, that stuck around in your mind for a while, in terms of your own appreciation of wines? Actually, even yesterday, something that was said, it's, it's uh, still resonating with me uh, at the white tasting. You know, when uh, Richard Betts, he just said, Terry Kalen, he says, it's not oxidation, it's oxygenation. It's kind of like, wow, just like spinning that whole, the whole oxidation and matterization term on its head right there. I mean, it's really something to ponder. How to, what, what happens to this wine to get it to where it is? You know, what stages have happened, you know, with introducing this little bit of oxygen? Like, that is what you do. So uh, th- that's, that's still just like sitting there in my head. I, I had to like tweet that yesterday. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that's so brilliant. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So, uh, I think visiting the vineyards, like I was getting at before, I think that, that really resonates also. You know, I mean, there's, there's no substitute for visiting a wine region, you know. I mean, you go to Piedmont or something like that in the fall, it's just breathtaking. It's the most gorgeous wine country there is. You know, you just look and fall autumnal colors everywhere. You know, the smell of truffles just like, you know, in the sky, it feels like, you know, all around you. I mean, you just learn so much going there and just walking around these vineyards, just seeing like the elevation, the slope, where the sun's hitting. You know, you just, you get that feel for it, you know? You mentioned Wine Searcher before and how it leveled the playing field. Now you're involved with a new app called Pick a Bottle. And what do you think this app might do in terms of restaurants? The essence of the app is essentially it helps the users find where to go to drink great wines. And I mean, it kind of does it two ways at this point. We have, as of now, a searchable database of uh, wine lists in New York City. So you can kind of search around like, oh, you know, who's, who's got Monfortino or something like that on these wine lists in New York? And, you know, kind of... So you, you know, can search by the wine. Yeah, you can search by the and wine. tell you the restaurants that have it. Exactly. Or you could just find restaurants in your area, you know, your, your kind of geographical location right there. It's like, oh, I'm near so-and-so place. Like, let's go out for another drink after dinner. You know, let's go here. They have a great wine list and you can actually pull up their wine list on there and look and see like, oh yeah, they focus on, on Pinot, they focus on Burgundy, they focus on Nebbiolo, whatever it is. So there, there are numerous ways to kind of use the app in that regard. And then also at the same time, you can't limit yourself just to restaurant wine lists. So we kind of have like a list of, you know, wine destinations, if you will, where if you're going to Paris, you're going to Bone, like, you know, where do you want to go there to just drink some fun wine? And we have descriptions just kind of telling if it's more of like a natural wine place. If uh, you're in Champagne, let's say, and you actually are kind of want to have, uh, you know, just some dry wine or something like that, some red, you know, it kind of tells you that. So it uh, kind of runs the gamut a little bit. It uh, just launched about uh, a month ago and feedback's been very positive thus far. How did you get involved with the project? Uh, the CEO, guy Mike Zimberg. I've known for years, just uh, he used to live in New York. He just, you know, collector, kind of involved in the wine scene. We had a bunch of dinners together. And last summer, I saw his LinkedIn profile updated to pick a bottle. I'm like, oh, something in the wine industry. What's going on here? And I looked and saw what it was, downloaded the app. And I, you know, the whole concept of the app was something that had like casually popped into my head years ago, you know. So then finally seeing this come to fruition, I'm like, wow, that's great. I'm just sending a congratulatory note, like, you know, this looks awesome. Like, happy to help out any way I can, anytime, you know. He's like, well, actually, I was about to write to you next week, <laughs> you know. So we just started chatting about things and uh, yeah, eventually signed some paperwork, became a partner, so, which is uh, which is certainly a fun new adventure. Got to know the whole team that's there. Uh, it's actually mostly guys that uh, that Mike had used to work with. This guy, Pierre Uchevo, he's the, the president that kind of runs the whole server back end. This guy, Dave Robertson. He does uh, the whole iOS design stuff, kind of the whole infrastructure of connecting it with the Apple iPhone. And then uh, Chris Ryan, who does the design as well. And all, all great guys. We've gotten along, you know, the the entire time, you know, which is kind of we're working a little remote. We have conference calls all the time and stuff like that. Yeah. Always work well together. What's it like to launch an app? I mean, what goes into that? A lot more than I thought, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, initially, it kind of seemed, you know, okay, we'll make these subtle changes here, you know, to make it, you know, kind of a little more refined, a little polished. Uh, but then you suddenly, you know, start talking about other things and it's a deep, deep rabbit hole that you start getting into. And, uh, you know, you kind of fix one thing, another thing starts to break, you know, so all, all this kind of stuff in the design phase that you're doing. But uh, actually seeing the finished project is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. What are some of the challenges to making a, a wine list comparative app? I mean, what stands in the way of doing that? Data, you know, I guess is 
perhaps the biggest challenge. Uh, but luckily, we have a, a system that works very, very well. Well, it, basically, when you know a wine list is online, we can you know get the data if it's a, like a PDF or something like that. So it's you know no sweat off the sommelier's back. You know, we try to minimize work for the Psalms. You know, that's what I was always adamant about. Like, we can't make these guys work for us, you know, not by any means. You know, we need to come to them. We need to work around their systems. So we have a, a great database that's now just being built up and built up constantly. And, you know, let's say a new wine list comes in, it kind of figures out what 70, 80% of the wines are you know, automatically on there. So boom, that's on the app. Then, you know, you have to kind of go through, you know, just like on Seller Tracker or something like that, which we use in Grunker Wine Consulting for our clients. You know, there are always wines that, you know, the database, you know, and like the spreadsheet, let's say you had or something like that, they're not going to jive exactly, you know, so you kind of need to like manually go in and go, do, do, do. yes, this is this, this is this. And it can tell your location so you can actually pull it up and then get a recommendation for something close to you, a wine list that you might like. And you can look at that wine list before you go to that location, mm-hmm. like before you mm-hmm. go to the restaurant. Yeah, I've, I've gotten the sense that, you know, for wine collectors, you know, it's kind of moving in that direction of, choosing where you want to go out to eat based on what wines they have on offer. So this is just a great tool to help people utilize that aspect. And when you pull up a restaurant, it gives you a percentage basis of what that wine list is based on. So if it's, you know, 50% American wines, it shows that, or if it's 50% Cabernet, it shows that. Yeah. Yeah. So you have an idea of, you know, what's on the list just right away, right, right there when you get on the homepage essentially of, uh, of the restaurant. And then what do you think are some of the features that beyond that kind of really stand out about the app? I mean, what is it going to bring to the table? I mean, I love being able to just search for, you know, numerous parameters. Like, let's say you're, you know, going out to a business dinner or something like that where, you know, you can't go wild, you have a budget or something like, all right, let's find some, let's do a search in New York here for red burgundies that are under $250 a bottle that are older than 1999, so that have some age on them. So you can kind of put in all those parameters and just like, wow, okay, there are these, you know, 25 wines. Like, great, they have it at this restaurant, this. So you can just kind of, you know, feel out where you want to go based on that. One of the things I noticed is that it offers somewhat of a comparative pricing. Like if two or three restaurants have the same wine, same vintage, it'll list the price of each if Mm -hmm. you click on it. So you have some sense of whether you're at the top of the the spectrum or at the bottom of the spectrum or in the middle for what price you happen to be paying it. Yeah. Some psalms I, I talked to are like, this is great because if I have a new wine that I'm putting on the list, I can kind of figure out where to price it. You know, I can see like, okay, you know, Madrigal has it for here. Capigal has it for here. You know, like, let's see, like, where do I want to put it here exactly? You know, so really, you know, getting a feel for, I have it at, you know, a steakhouse, for example, like, hey, it's a Cabernet. I could probably charge a little bit more, <laughs> you know, kind of thing or, you know, whatever the feel of it is, you know, that's the sommelier always has that overriding feel for the their list but you know at the same time having data that you can really hard data that you can look at is uh it hasn't really been out there unless you want to take a half an hour looking through a bunch of wine lists which i don't think anyone wants to do and you can have it just as a regular consumer you don't have to be in the business to use it Mm -hmm. yeah and it's free yeah exactly (laughs) but wine searcher by offering easily searchable comparative pricing change the pricing landscape for retail do you think that'll also happen at restaurants or or no Possible, possible. If uh, enough users start uh, start using it at all times, um, uh, and restaurants kind of go along with it, then yeah, I, I don't see why not. You know? Especially with yeah, being able to price compare. So that gives a lot of information to consumers. What do you think that the benefit to restaurants would be beyond what you already mentioned about trying to find the right price for an item? I think it really gets people into the restaurant. You know, I mean, people see that you know they have this wine at a good price. Like, I'll go. You know, if if someone has like a great bottle of, you know, something unique, something like a Trucho or a Versailles or something or a Fun Fourier, you know, and they price it well, they should be rewarded. You know, someone should come in and drink that. The right person should come in and drink that. So you're having people that search for these wines directly, you know, that are like adamant, like, I want to drink these kind of wines, these style, you know? Yeah, sure. They're the ones that should have it. And the, and the restaurant should then get that money. And there's a lot of customizable filters. Like I can say, I want to search for white wine, half bottles mm-hmm. at this price range. So I can sort of determine exactly what it is I want to mm-hmm. narrow in on, mm-hmm. whether it be more general or more specific. Mm-hmm. Like I could say William Fev, or I can say, you know, something from Chablis. Yeah. You, you mean Dovisat? <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to Fev. <laughs> that is a classic wine consulting answer, by the way. <laughs> So we're, that's the first version of the app release. Where do you see it going in the future? You know, what, what's ahead for you guys? 
but there are a lot of potential directions, you know, to be honest, it's very bare bones, I'd say at this point, which, you know, we kind of wanted it to be that way to kind of, you know, let the, in a way, let the users kind of help dictate where it can go. I mean, there are certainly things where, you know, we want to add in some pro features, you know, eventually, you know, maybe some sommelier recommended wines, ability to maybe have like a wish list or something like that. Buying a bottle in advance, you know, ahead of time, you can then say like, oh, I'd like it decanted or something like that, or stood up, you know, for several days in advance. You can give those kind of instructions. There are certainly ways in, in addition, just, you know, maybe the, the restaurants can use the data as well. You know, who knows? So a little TBD at this point, but we're open to suggestions. So moving more in that direction of advanced planning for the wine side of a meal. Like mm-hmm. that idea that you can have some idea of what the wines are going to be on offer and how you want to approach that in terms of your own budget or maybe your own preparation of those wines. Like exactly. You can call the sommelier and say, hey, uh, yeah, decant that three hours ahead. I want to purchase it from you. And then maybe in the future one day, you could actually do that through the app itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are the restaurants geographically that are in the program now? Uh, we have about 14 cities, I believe, outside of New York at this point where they're kind of, you know, a description is written about them. Uh, and that's just only going to be growing and growing. I'm constantly adding to that all the time. So in terms of searchable wine lists, it's a New York thing for so now. It's New York as of now. And we're definitely going to be growing that aspect just throughout the country, you know, uh, in the upcoming months. And do you see a lot of other competitors in this zone? There was, I think, one competitor who... I, the guys told me about or something, but I, I, I even forget the name to be honest. But you know, it's kind of like a beverage thing, and you know, would say like, "Here, find some fun wines." But then they would have listed on the app like Starbucks <laughs> or something like that as well. It's like, hmm, that seems like they're just kind of putting everything on Google Maps or something like that into the app. Well, well, for us, it's it's more we want it curated. You know, we want every place on the app to be somewhere that's worthwhile to go for wines, places that actually have fun wine programs. I don't really care if it's if it's big or small, as long as it's well thought out. As long as it's well priced, you know, you just have the right kind of wines on there that, you know, the kind of modern wine drinker wants to have. So some level of editorial curation of the actual yeah, programs definitely, involved. Definitely. Yeah. So like the guys will kind of ask me like, oh, what do you think some of the next restaurants are that we should be putting on the app? You know, I'll be like, okay, let's definitely go for this, 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 this isn't on yet. And uh, yeah, we'll certainly be having more discussions about upcoming cities. But yeah, I mean, we definitely want like, you know, Chicago, San Francisco, LA, you know, all those kind of places on there. Is there a lag time between having the appropriate information in terms of what's available at the restaurant? And then, you know, maybe that's sold tonight. And then maybe by the time the guy comes in. Or- yeah, it's a matter of when the restaurant updates it online. So, you know, there will certainly be times where, yeah, wine did sell the night before, you know, so it's a always a good idea to maybe check the wine list when you're in the restaurant, you know, just double check like, Oh yeah, they still have it. Great. You know? Yeah. It's not $200 more now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause things do change all the time. It's not real time data just cause I mean, like connecting to breadcrumb or micros or something like that would be a whole other headache. I would have no interest in getting it to. <laughs> Why do you think the lag time between the launch of something like wine searcher and something like pick a bottle has been so long. Like why has it been so long that there hasn't been something like this for restaurants? It might just be because of the whole sommelier scene. I mean, like we were talking about before, I mean, it's just gotten kind of bigger and badder, you know, throughout the years. So therefore just more people are paying attention to it. But also a lot of these wines are, are highly allocated wines and the distributors, the winemakers, they want the wines in these restaurants, you know, oftentimes just can't find them elsewhere. I mean, you, Go down to Pearl and Ash, and they have like most every fun new California wine you can imagine. Even though they're not even known as like a California place necessarily, you know they're no, just known as a fun place, you know, <laughs> with everything. But uh, they uh, the wines there. I mean, you know, you have like the Closer on or something like that. You know, that's that they have, or like the Sandlands. You know, these these wines are these wines are great, and you just can't find them elsewhere really. So being able to go there and actually drink these wines in a fun environment, you know, I think more people are just kind of gravitating towards and. Also, you have a lot of people that, you know, maybe can't afford to have full wine cellars yet. They don't have a dedicated room. They don't want to deal with storage. So they'll go out and drink the wines there. That's, in a way, their wine collection. So an app that comes out of sommelier culture, but could it end up affecting sommelier culture down the line? Is this something that's going to move trends in the future, an app like this? Uh, possibly. I mean, it's it would be premature, I think, for me to... to uh, to talk about any of that at this point when, you know, it's all just presumption, you know, at, at this point. But what's the goal, you know, five, ten years out, if you're a happy pick-a-bottle partner, 
Mm-hmm. What's that look like? Oh, I think we have dozens of, of cities on the app. Uh, no question. We have sommeliers, uh, yeah, constantly involved in the app, uh, recommending it to other users that come in. Like, this is really what you should be looking at, you know, as one of the top apps that's out there. You know, sommeliers at the same time, yeah, doing the price comparison. You know, there, there, there are so many ways to, I think, see where it could go. I mean, maybe getting involved in like, you know, think, I don't know. I, I can't even say, you know, to be honest, there, there are so many ways that it, that it, it could happen. What's next for you personally? David Beckwith, you've done a lot. Auctions, consulting, sommelier, top restaurants. What's the next goal for you? Raising three happy, healthy girls. Must be challenging. It is. Given also the industry, it's not always so friendly to families. Yeah, luckily, my, my line of work these days, you know, I, you know, I'm my own boss, so I can kind of make my own hours. So being able to spend time with my family when I need to, it's very, very important. I wouldn't trade it for anything. If someone were coming up in the wine world and they wanted to have a child or a couple children, what would you recommend to them? I mean, what would you say to them as a dad? I would say figure out what you really want to focus on and learn it inside out and be as good an expert as you can be in it. You know, you don't have to do everything, but you should really be one of the best at what you do do. David Beckwith of Grand Crew Wine Consulting and also Pick a Bottle. He's always been focused and he's doing a lot of cool things. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. It was great. David Beckwith of Grand Crew Wine Consulting and Pick a Bottle. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.